And I'm joined today by Niels Neuyox of Red Bull Racing Esports and G2 Sim Racing. Yes, hi, how are you? <laughs> uh, yeah, so Niels, before we get right into the show itself and everything that happened with 24-hour of Le Mans virtual, I kind of want to ask you, very basically, what does a sim racing manager do? Well, with sim racing becoming ever more professional and so many leagues popping up here and there, there's just a fair bit of organization needed in the background that usually those very young drivers aren't very familiar with. And with brands coming in, having their interests and representation needs, they just need some sort of managing. And go ahead and explain some of your background and how you got into the world of sim racing. Uh, oh, yeah. So, well, I think about 20 years back or so when I was barely 10, my my father just i think he bought for himself a, a racing wheel but um he framed it as a gift for myself um and i <laughs> happened ended up yeah, i ended up driving a couple of race games back in the uh, i don't know late 90s maybe or so then dropped it for a bit but then one day uh, i scrolled through some forum found a game called live for speed got immediately hooked forgot about all my other gaming and um yeah i think in 2002 or 3 that must have been where i started sim racing from there, I think it was about 10 years where I was competitive or so, and then another 10 where I was really completely out of the community. And just got back with the Race of Champions late 2018, where they opened up the competition for virtual drivers as well. I qualified for the final in Mexico, went there, had a, had a great time. Things from there just went uh, its own way, really. Got a job offer at G2 here. Then we got the Rapper Racing Esports project, and now this is my job. That's awesome. Yeah, let's jump into the big story. So over the weekend took place the 24-hour Le Mans virtual. A lot of attention is being paid to not necessarily the winners of the event, but kind of everything that occurred around the event. The big headline was what happened with Max Verstappen and Fernando Alonso. I think we've kind of seen this with other sim racing events when the real drivers are also entering these events. Something always just happens to go wrong, whether it be glitches, whether it be internet connections. Is this something that's happening because these guys are new to this space and are still trying to learn it? Or are these kind of connection issues or glitches and things like that? Is this common for the sim racing world? First of all, it's definitely not on the driver's end. I don't know the specifics that our factor had to prepare around that race because it is a daunting task to have, I don't know, if they filed 60 cars or so from around the globe onto a single server trying to keep all connections alive for 20 hours straight. It does work on some games, it does not work on others. I think overall we didn't have too many issues. Ideally, of course, we could get around them completely. I mean, it's kind of a special situation in gaming altogether, right? You don't have a 24-hour long League of Legends match. We would probably see issues there too. I guess they're working on it. They know themselves it isn't ideal and it's probably something they want to avoid uh, in the future. But with everything kind of happening so quickly, they just had to, yeah, go with what they had. Like sim racing is, is so complex in a way that we have so much equipment involved. And there's there's always uh, problems with, with all of these parts having to work together. And um, there are just games and hardware combinations that work better than others. So we by now get kind of used that we will experience this sort of issues even though as you said i wouldn't see them uh, as an excuse similar to to what can happen in real life with car parts failing and all that because it, it's not that the equipment we're using is under the same stress as the real car would be and it's not like these this stuff wouldn't be avoidable one way or another so yeah it's used by some tournament organizers as an excuse but as yeah you said before uh, uh, don't let that count really 
And also explain to me kind of the difficulty of, you know, managing sim racing teams on multiple different games, because there aren't 20 different versions of League of Legends or Counter-Strike. And there is like 20 different sim racers out there. I mean, how do you manage it all? And why is there so many? I mean, I, I can't I can't explain why everybody thinks they should do another racing game. And I mean, cars are a big topic in the world, and certainly racing is, and I just think that the whole gaming around racing always lagged behind the magnitude it has in real life, I think. And with, uh, I mean, with the whole thing around Corona, that probably just gave sim racing, at least for the nick of time, the attention that kind of matches the attention it gets in real life. And now people mm -hmm, mm -hmm. start to learn about how detailed it actually is, that it's just not a simple game or so, that it's actually very complicated and difficult to, to shine in these games. I feel that for a lot of people, you know, like in the esports realm, sim racing is just so far and away different than, you know, what they're used to seeing. So, I mean, why is, in a set of course, a Competizione, like, better than a Forza or a Gran Turismo, maybe a game that they're more familiar with? So, I think when you, when you have a PlayStation or an Xbox at hand and you know this is your platform, then you want to cater to a lot of different people and get huge volume out of, or just sell many copies, right? And then additionally, with the consoles, you don't just have as much options with hardware and people are usually a li little bit more casually orientated with their gaming. And then on the console, you would probably just skip a few of the hyper-realistic parts that we have on the PC. And also the consoles, still being good hardware, they are limited in a way to the amount of physical calculations they can do, just because they don't tap into, I don't know, the latest Intel processor or something. What makes Asset the Corsa so special is that you really have a really immersive feeling, which is down to uh, the whole sound environment that you have, and especially the, the feedback that you get through the, the wheel in front of you, and then how the car reacts. It's all just very intuitive how you would drive a real car, so to say. Of course, it's not the same thing, but I think it's, for me personally, I think the closest we can have as a consumer software right now. Mm. You know, uh, earlier this week, I hosted a panel for Asado Corsa Competizione along with 505 Games, and we had a bunch of drivers and uh, developers and people from SR Motorsport on as well. What was interesting was after the show, you know, I, I was reading through the comments and a lot of people were like, well, you know, why aren't you talking more about the console versions, right? Like we are here to hear about the console versions, the PS4 and Xbox One version. And, you know, I was always kind of the, under, under the assumption that, you know, while it's great that a set of courses is coming to home console that, you know, the most hardcore sim racers would prefer to play with you know, pedal setups and everything on a computer with a high-end system. But I guess I was wrong in that regard. So is there a desire for these high-quality sim racers to hit more accessible video game consoles so that it becomes, I guess, more democratic? I think, um, so first of all, you can have similar hardware attached to the console. So you can get the high-end direct drive, $1,000, $2,000 worth of hardware connected to the PlayStation. So there's at least in that regard, there's no limitation compared to the PC. But I think the other thing is that on on the PlayStation, even now though ACC is there, a lot of the other games that we play are not on the console. So going to the console and focusing on that, you will always kind of limit your range of simulations that you can tap into. And like most people I know, don't focus on a single game. They always want to kind of have, have fun in another game every now and then, uh, especially the I guess the majority of people is way more open than those professionalizing in a, in a certain game. 
You know, I know, like, for example, Call of Duty League has a deal with PlayStation, so all Call of Duty League competition is played on PlayStation. Let's assume a set of Corsa Competizione makes a deal with Xbox and makes it so that all competition should be played on Xbox. Do you think there would be a huge kind of uh, backlash from the competitors that have all been playing on PC for so long? I am pretty sure about that because one thing in, in competitive gaming and sim racing is that you want to have the best possible visual experience as well. And it's not just about the, the graphics looking good, but it's also about having as many frames per second uh, as you can get. And the console is just naturally limited. And also for the reason, I mean, I've seen footage of ACC on the console lately. I'm not sure this is the confirmed footage and if there will be um, a change in the future, but it seems like they were running on 30 frames per second, which I think is, yeah, a, tr a, a huge offset to competing on, on a high level there because just just having so little frames, you just miss out on, on information in the game. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I think the other thing is that the console, it's a bit more difficult, if not impossible, to have a multi-monitor setup. Yeah, I don't know of any, any option to tell the PlayStation to please spread the, the picture or the image across three monitors indeed, yeah. Mm. And then jumping back to the 24 hour Le Mans virtual, I know in some past sim racing events, they would limit it to, let's say, only the professional, like real world racing drivers, and they wouldn't invite the sim racing professionals. Was that the case with this race? No, I think that the Le Mans is especially in the real world too, as the teams really form around this single event. So you would see a lot of cooperations between racing drivers aligned to different brands and teams, and they would come together on a single car. And it's very similar this time for yeah for this virtual version of it where they i think you had to have a minimum of two real racing drivers on the team and the others could be sim racers so there were a few uh, mixtures for example we as g2 got lucky with with our our driver yal t and to to get a, on a car with rubens barrichello and fernando alonso so I think for him, that was a great opportunity and just an experience working with, well, some of the best who ever drove cars. Yeah, and I believe it was Lando Norris. Correct me if I'm wrong, but he said that after racing in the virtual Le Mans that he wants to actually jump into the real Le Mans. Is that something that you and your racers also kind of have a desire to do, to jump from virtual to physical? As we have really different guys on the team. Some are really just, they originated from gaming. And they really just like to play games and, and, and compete on the PC. Some of them don't even have a, a driving license or their own car, and they couldn't even care for real cars. But then, of course, we have other guys who, yeah, they wouldn't hesitate a second if someone offered them a drive in a real car. Some of them even have driven a series in a real car. So we, we have a mixture of everything, really. Yeah, yeah. So what do you think makes for a better overall uh, sim racer, somebody who does the real world stuff as well or somebody who just sticks with the virtual stuff? I think someone who takes it serious will always be the better sim racer. Um, of course, I, I mean, I've been working and, and coaching a few of the real drivers who now migrated to, to the virtual space. And you can see that, I mean, they certainly know how to drive cars and all the wording you use and they can immediately translate any input that you give them into their driving and incorporate that. So you see they they can pick it up rather quickly. Whereas if you have a, a Counter-Strike player or something going to sim racing, he'll struggle for quite some time, which also kind of points towards that uh, sim racing has, has reached a high level where it becomes not, I mean, similar. 
I can, I can judge that, right? Because I haven't driven many cars, but I guess it's on a level where it is comparable to the real thing. And that makes it easier for the real drivers to, to adapt to it. Mm. And then final question before, you know, I, I let you go. Essentially, why are sim racers, why do sim racers tend to perform better than real racers inside a virtual environment? Um, I think because we understand from and from experience, of course, that most of the lap time and consistency is gained from loads of practice. And the real racers will usually only practice so much, maybe one or two hours a day or so, unless they have really competitive grunt. And I know for a reason that Max Verstappen and Lando Norris probably also an age thing, right? They're they're from the younger generation. They're into gaming as well. And they just know that practice in this sort of stuff pays off. And also you have to think that the real racers coming to the sim are usually robbed of their senses that they usually use to drive a car. So they now have to develop a new sense, how to yeah, judge what the car is doing, how they have to drive it, how to adapt to it, how to react to it. And they just have to learn quite a few different sensory experiences they can tap into. Mm. Uh, well, with that, thank you so much for jumping on, Niels. Uh, thanks for having me. And now I'm joined by Nick Dorazio, Director of Corporate Strategy at Inven Global. Hi there. It's really happy to be here. So Filipino champ, one of the greatest members in the Street Fighter community, just got banned or kicked out of all Street Fighter events for the foreseeable future after a very ill-advised tweet. And essentially what happened is that he posted a picture of a watermelon with the hashtag watermelon lives matter. uh, And it, it immediately set off a flurry of criticism and he had to take down the tweet. Just as quickly, Capcom Pro Tour came out and said that, you know, he is being removed from all Capcom Pro Tour events indefinitely. So we, we, we actually don't know what's going on right now. It's kind of a crazy situation. So when you first saw this tweet, what was your immediate reaction, Nick? So first of all, I love FChamp. I love FChamp simply because he's an esports champion. I personally love the way he trash talks. I love his uh, mentality, and I think he's a competitor through and through. I also think that um, FChamp is like, he's a homie. You know, like, FChamp loves the fighting game community, and people love him back. I think FChamp has contributed so much towards where the fighting game community is now. I think he's created so many hype moments. So, to me, I view this as just another long line of mistakes when it comes towards, okay, I'm esports industry, a Capcom, you had the right idea, but the execution of this was just too heavy-handed. I don't think that anyone needs to be removed from tournaments and have their ability to compete stripped simply because they made a joke you didn't think was funny or simply because they made a a remark that you didn't think was appropriate. I just don't think anyone really benefits from this. The only thing that this benefits is a group of, of outraged people who really want to fight racism and, you know, injustice. They don't know how, so they go around just taking off random people with this cancel culture like you know you haven't done anything to help esports or help race relations in this country by saying someone like f champ can't compete so there are a few things to unpack from your answer there right like first you're going off to the idea that you know f champ is an important member of the fighting games community two he made a joke that was ill-advised but wasn't necessarily malicious and that it is cancel culture that is all kind of piling up on him 
and Capcom being a little too heavy handed with its response. But, you know, at the same time, he is a representative. He's you know played for some of the best teams in the world. Is it true or not true that he should have a little bit of, you know, kind of foresight or hindsight on the situation at hand right now? I mean, the world like America was like very much on the verge of like going into like almost like a civil war. I mean, there's parts of Seattle right now that are just like that that have blocked police and, you know, there are protests going on every day. Yeah. So that is a fair point, but it is we are putting a stacked deck against the people we follow and the people we support. And what I mean by that is it's almost impossible to predict what is going to get you canceled nowadays. Like it's literally impossible to know how your comment or your joke or your anything is going to be viewed. I mean, some people even say going on a podcast like this long form is a disastrous idea because what are the odds that I'm going to say something that people don't like so they cancel me versus what are the odds that I'm going to say something that people like so much that I'm catapulted into fame and clout, right? So it's like the risk just isn't there. So you have someone like F Champ, he made a simple joke, right? And now this simple joke is somehow undoing his contributions. I mean, I personally think that he's shown the fact that he knows his audience. He's already said sorry. He's already said that the tweet wasn't sensitive. He already said that he didn't mean harm, which... Um, by the way, it's already a bad look that he's apologizing. We've already learned it's a pretty known thing. If you apologize in, in these situations, people just, they just bully you even more. Like F-Champ's going to get even more uh, crap for this. He's going to get I mean, even more Do you think he should have doubled people. down then and just continued saying like more watermelons matter or whatever? So here's the thing, right? It was a joke. His intent was probably to make people laugh. His intent was to be cheeky. His intent was to, throughout all of this insanity, create a moment of lightheartedness, right? As someone who jokes all the time, right, I probably wouldn't have made this joke, not because I don't want to make people laugh or I'm not trying to be edgy, but I very clearly see that the risk-reward for this joke is so off. Like, 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 and that (laughs) was what his failure was. So we need to start talking about reality here, right? I personally think Capcom sees uh, situations like this and they love it. This is easy for them. They don't care about one player. This is an so easy can, opportunity can, for them can to I, just can I pause signal. you for a second? Yeah, please. This is kind of what I'm hearing. This is kind of what confuses me, right? So on one hand, I, I, I agree with you, right? Like, we don't know ultimately what Ryan's intentions were. So we can't just say, oh, you know, he was... Uh, speaking out of malice and, you know, he should be given the ban hammer. But then at the same time, we're saying that we do know Capcom's intentions and that they're just trying to get like easy marketing points. Is that, is that a little unfair on, on, I guess, yeah. on the Capcom's front at least? So first I want to just push back and say, we do know Champ's intentions. He was trying to mm-hmm. make a joke. He was not trying to be racist. So we need to play by the rules here. If I'm willing mm-hmm. to look at someone's tweet and then say, oh my God, F-Champ, you're so racist. This is your intention. Then I should also look at the tweet of him saying sorry, and I should also look at the tweet of him saying I did not mean this at face value, right? I mean, that seems fair to me. Now, I'm obviously that's not what's happening because we don't live in a fair society right now when it comes to PR and, you know, and this. It doesn't matter that he says sorry. It doesn't matter that he has just been an overall great guy that isn't racist, right? And even if he has shown comments that people can dig up from years ago and years ago, 
the, the world was very, very different. You could just say things mm-hmm. because you were joking in your close group or you could purposely be a heel or be edgy because you didn't expect the whole world with a microscope would look at the things you say in 140 characters. We all know this, right? So now let's look at what isn't so known. A Capcom mm-hmm. and virtual signaling, right? These are the same sort of companies that regularly censor their games for China. You don't see Capcom making any big stands for that. You don't see Capcom saying, this is ridiculous. We're not going to ever allow these Chinese companies. No, you don't see any of that. It is, it, it is 100% just deference. No, I agree with you, right? There are too many companies that are that will support, you know, American protests because they understand that in America they can get away with it, but will not do so in an authoritarian country like China where they can immediately just say, okay, you're done, you're out. Right. And then that could obviously hurt their bottom dollar. So they're always like making their political statements in mind with how it'll affect their bottom line. But at the same time, you know, um, well, it's it's going to be, I guess, a multi-tiered question. So it wasn't just Capcom Cup. It's also East Coast Throwdown that has um, banned F-Champ and Combo Breaker. Does that mean that, you know, it's not just corporations? Because like, you know. The Hado oh, yeah. on Twitter or East Coast Throwdown. These, these are very community-run events, right? Yeah. So personally, I think there are more people that know how to virtue signal and cancel people on social media than actually enact meaningful change, right? Like everyone wants to do something. That's great. We see the impetus for action, right? Awesome. I can't wait for people to walk away from George Floyd with a bias for action, when you see there's a chance to do something, do it. But who is this actually helping? I certainly know a fighting game fans aren't. I certainly know I'm fighting games as an esport isn't. I certainly know any event that won't feature um, F Champ, who's a proven um, Evo champion. This is someone that we've rallied behind. This is someone that esports has taken from. We have watched his clips and people have made money off of analyzing him. People have made money off of going through his personality with a fine-tooth comb and then creating narratives around it, right? But who are we helping here? I I just don't think we're helping anyone. I think all of this is the most defensive and fearful type of of virtue signaling. You know, I I have another question. So, you know, uh, you're black. So when you first, I guess, saw the tweet, I mean, barring, you know, kind of anything else, like you're saying that people might have overinterpreted the intention of the tweet. So are you saying that, like, I, I know you don't speak for, like, an entire population of people, but I mean... Um... So let's break it down. In order yeah. for uh-huh. this to be perceived racist, here are the things that I have to assume about Filipino right. Champ. One, I have to assume that he's, like, publicly an open racist. Like, part of what his goal is to do is use the public a platform Twitter that he has grown, that he gets his money from... And he wanted to let the black community know that in some vague way, we're associated with watermelons. And then he wanted to let us know that he views the death of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement as something that's trivial. And that in some way, shape or form, him preparing to cut a watermelon is like the equivalent of killing someone. So it's maybe as silly as the all lives matter uh, movement. And he's saying that watermelons live matter, right? Like, I just don't understand why you would even make that leap. When if you wanted to make that leap, why don't you make the leap on the positive end? Like, how come we are able to just kind of generalize these absurd stories 
of people being racist, but we're not able to give them the benefit of the doubt. I don't think doing it the other way helps anyone. I don't think it helps me. I don't think it helps the black community. I don't think it helps esports. I don't think it spreads any sort of positive change that can come from this movement. I'll, I'll give one final piece of analysis before we jump onto the next thing. And, you know, I do agree with you that, you know, there's as long as there isn't like a really strong proven track record of like uh, absurd racism from F champ, I'd say it's probably fair to give him the benefit of the doubt or any kind of bans that he's given are temporary at most or uh, a year or something, you know, something to signal that, you know, th- this in this current political environment with everything that's going on with the amount of people that uh, are dying with the investigations going on to the recent spring, uh, spring of like black hangings. There, there are consequences for not being a little bit more conscious or conscientious oh, of, of course. Uh, everything that's going on. But with that, I think it's, I, I think we have to kind of put a cap on it there because there's something else I want to talk to you about as well. And that's Valorant. So, uh, you know, Valorant. Kind of trying to make a, trying to make a really strong, like 180 here. Yeah. Uh, so Va- Valorant was like the, the biggest game to hit Twitch in a long, long time where it was, t- it was breaking records in viewership on all fronts. And now we're seeing any kind of Valorant tournaments are like barely pulling in 7,000 views. Uh, you see on Twitter, some people are posting some of the other accounts that might be viewing the Valorant events. And it's a lot of like Valorant one, two, three, four, five, you know, these kind of like almost bot accounts. So they're like, what is going on with uh, Valorant's viewership? So think about this, right? The esports industry has been plagued by inflated numbers for some time, for a long time. Um, we've seen this in the 2015 to 2017 era of all of these teams getting big investments and everyone having so much money. We've seen it with the Overwatch League and people questioning the views. And now with Valorant, it was, oh, a paradigm shift, right? Look, the, um, Valorant's the new hot. Look how many um, like records it's breaking. Rule number mm-hmm. one for me is I always am very skeptical of a paradigm shift because things don't change that quick. Right. Things change, but slowly over time. So I took very seriously the stories about Valorant and the view bots. I took very seriously the like reality that this isn't so much a popular game, but it's a FOMO, a strategy of closed beta um, invites, which, by the way, Riot did perfectly. If you're going to say yeah. something about what you want to do in a beta, turns out drops enabled is a very good idea. It's a good idea because it generates the belief of overwhelming hype. It literally uh, generates the shadow that this paradigm shift is happening and Valorant's the newest big game. But all it really was, was people were bored in their house. Oh, look, this thing, oh, it's a closed beta. I need an invite only. I'll do whatever it takes. So yeah, man, people made bots. Not only did people make bots, but people made bots and then they sold accounts that they got via the bots, right? Because people didn't want to sit through. What does this mean for Valorant in the future? Well, for one, if it didn't have this hype um, expectation to um, live up to, no one would be uh, questioning Valorant's strength as an esports title right now. I believe the game has been out, what, three weeks, maybe even less than that, right? Esports Mm -hmm. games take time to develop. It takes time to create a community. It takes time for people to get good enough at the game where they seek more knowledge about the game. But Valorant, from the get-go, wasn't introduced as an eSport. It was introduced as a top game on Twitch. It was introduced as the latest, hottest game that the biggest streamer is playing. So people are judging Valorant based off that uh, model of success. So when they see the views drop, which, by the way, views dropped because Riot said, hey, anyone can put on 
a Valorant tournament, well, yeah, people are going to take you up on that offer. So we've seen a huge inflation of these events. So the events are inflated. There hasn't been prize pools that are big enough to really cut through the noise to really make a tournament series where people should pay attention because the best players in the world will play. And we're, I'm already seeing, yeah, there are other esports on the horizon and there are more things that are just as popular, just as powerful. And they already have the legions of fans who are willing to accept this digital model of online events, of streamed events, that they're willing to embrace their esport as this. So, yeah, there's so so much to talk about with Valorant. Chase, you know, who you and I both know over at Stream Elements, jumped on our, our Twitter thread and, you know, we were as- essentially asking him, like, you know, why was there this sudden drop? And he did point out a few things, right? So when Valorant first came out, it was like literally every top streamer was playing it and putting tons of hours into it. And yeah, barring, you know, even even if bots weren't there, it would probably have still pulled in, like, it would still probably have been, like, the, the number one uh, streamed game on Twitch and Mixer or whatnot. XQC, Yasuo, and Tim the Tatman were among the top Valorant streamers for uh, April, and but and then in May there was a, you know, a pretty decent fall off. So if they all decided to like lower their streaming hours, and it could be you know personal, they could could have been burnout, it could have been them uh, wanting to show a little bit of sensitivity towards kind of the events that are going on in the world and wanting to step back a little. But even then, even then, I think if they were still streaming at full capacity, I don't believe that they necessarily would be streaming Valorant because I think you know just kind of like when it is like kind of like with Apex Legends that happened what was it 2019 right like it was the hot game it was the new thing everyone was like super hyped about it it's really easy if EA or a publisher essentially like pays people to play or gives them exclusive access so they can show something new to their audiences but when that thing is fully out into the open and it has to really build from the ground up that's a completely different conversation it's the other thing it's a free game right there's no barrier entry that means there's no barrier to leave either they can easily walk in and walk that's out that's a good point um, and I, I think like what you mentioned is that you know riot has kind of opened up tournaments as well i've also read that people have been kind of wary of like creating their own like major big scale events until they kind of uh, see what Valorant is doing because they don't want to essentially get completely overblown by, you know, some crazy franchising model and then their tournament, you know, goes to dust. Yeah, so, uh, man, what fantastic points. Personally, I think that streaming and Twitch, a lot of people don't understand the way that works when it comes to a developer trying to get their game out to as many people as possible. Twitch is the red carpet. So these games come out on the red carpet and it is these streamers and these content creators, it's their job to make content. But eventually there comes a time where Valorant is no longer the new game. So I'd want to agree with what you said when you noted you don't even think that these streamers would be playing Valorant. I agree. They wouldn't be playing Valorant because it's not the newest game. I mean, Mm. you already have pretty much everything the PS5 just released and just launched, right? All of that threatens Valorant's viewership numbers. So XQZ, that guy is so entertaining. You can watch him play anything. But I think what we're learning now, if you want to be a streamer, if you want to be a pro player, it's diversity. Esports and Twitch streaming, in my opinion, they're very different industries and they're often conflated to be the same because, you know, we, you know, they work together very similar. But yeah, I think Valorant has had its time out of the Twitch um, royalty. Now it is firmly, I think, an esports 
a territory. I think the people that play are into it because it's a competitive game. The people that play are the ones because they're interested in seeing these tournaments. So it's a small scene, but it's growing. And I personally predict the scene will continue to grow and it will continue to be a flagship title for Riot. Yeah, I think these type of smaller events that are being um, supported by um, esports orgs and and um, Riot, I think this is where we're headed towards a strong Valorant um, ecosystem. And now for some idle chit-chat. So Nick, when you're playing WoW Classic and are uh, chatting with Leroy Jenkins, what have you been chatting about? You know, I've been thinking a lot more about, about compassion in esports and how to get people involved. We've been talking, uh, actually I just recently had a, a Black Lives Matter panel for our Invent Global um, esports conference series. And one of the points that I think was the most salient is, you know, like the reality of a gamer when they enter their first LAN or when they enter their first tournament or their first lobby, there is an experience that's different if you're a person of color or you are transgender or you're a woman. There's so often you enter the space and no one else looks like you. No one else sounds like you. No one else has that just inherent sense of recognizing you as a gamer. And it's just very, very different if you're, say, white or even Asian. You know, I think I would love to see just people acknowledge that more. I've been trying to like acknowledge how hard it is to make friends within esports when you already view yourself as an outsider. So, you know, there's a whole lot of things to say how you can change that, but it's something that I've been thinking about and I've been enjoying the conversations I've been having with my friends about it. It's a hard topic, but if you can mention it, then you can manage it. I firmly do believe that. So I'm glad we're having those talks. Yeah. And for me, it's on a, on a much lighter note. I, uh, oh, thank I God. recently, I, I've, I've had some heavy, heavy topics in past idle chit chat. So I kind of wanted to lighten it up and I want to point everyone to Tevin Studdard, who's a rapper out of I want to say Indianapolis and just has like one of his favorite donut shops is opened up after quarantine and he made a whole rap video about it, about Long's Bakery. I would say just YouTube this Long's Bakery. It's it'll brighten up your day. It's absolutely delightful. And with that, thank you so much for jumping on the show. Hey, hey, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks for just giving me a chance to rant and talk. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I hope I can be back on some other time. This really great podcast.